Radio Mano Papachango. from Topanga, California, ladies and gentlemen. I am coming to you a little late this week because I've been going crazy. I'm uh, traveling around. I was in Miami and Naples, Florida last week. I recorded a couple of uh, really interesting podcasts with uh, marine biologists there, two marine biologists, and another one with a gentleman who has been working in the Galapagos Islands for seven years, uh, running a nonprofit fascinating johan um that'll be coming soon and then i went over i was in naples florida on the other side on the gulf side of florida with um, my uncle and his wife and my uncle agreed to sit down and do a podcast a very special episode i as you know i don't um I don't have a lot of family uh, on the podcast because it just feels like too much can go wrong, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Uh, And uh, but my uncle um, agreed to be on the podcast. He's a fascinating guy um, and he's been sort of a role model for me growing up over the years. So um, that was an important episode and uh, that'll be coming to you soon as well. Um, But right now I'm still on the road, so I don't have time to sit down and and do a lot of editing and put things together, which is why this is coming to you at the end of the week rather than the beginning of the week. Um, But this episode features Dan Engel, who is a psychiatrist and um, a neurologist. He's certified in both psychiatry and neurology, and um, he's a really funky guy, a cool guy. He also does uh, these days he does functional medicine, um, integrative uh, psychiatry tries to um, help the body's healing processes rather than just, you know, slap a bunch of medications on. Um, Very interesting guy, was a a high-level athlete um, before he got into medical school, I think. He tells the whole story in the the podcast. I recorded this a couple months ago, so it's not super fresh in my mind. but he's a fascinating guy. He consults at Onnit. You may have seen him there if you uh, buy products from Onnit. Uh, he's one of the guys who looks into their supplements and uh, you know makes sure everything is copacetic with that stuff. But before we get to that, uh, thank you, everybody who supports the podcast through Amazon.com. This month, it looks like the prize. I'm, I'm going to make prizes when I remember uh, for people who uh, remember to go through the link. This the high highest commission this month was for a fine mod circle sofa in white. It takes a lot of balls to buy a white sofa. Now, either you don't have any dogs or kids uh, or you, you just like don't give a damn or you're one of these people who has like plastic over your sofa so it never gets dirty. I don't know. But whoever you are who spent a lot of money for your white sofa, we got $47.20 coming to the podcast. So thank you very much. If you hear this and you say, hey, that's me. I bought a sofa through Chris's Amazon thing. 
send me an email and I will happily have my mom send you a signed copy of Sex at Dawn or a t-shirt or if you already have a t-shirt and a signed copy of Sex at Dawn but you have a friend who might like a t-shirt or a signed copy of Sex at Dawn give us their name and address and we'll send it to them no worries thank you to everybody who who went through the link um that shit adds up and you know since i gave up advertising that's the only way this ball keeps rolling other than fundwhatyoulove.com and patreon.com which are both ways that you can set up an account that drops a buck or five bucks or whatever into the podcast every week so thanks for all that Uh, I'm going to keep this very short and sweet so I can throw this up immediately while I still have access to internet. I'm hanging with my buddy, Justin, from episode 99. He flew down yesterday. Say hi, Justin. Hello, everybody. (laughs) That's Justin. Uh, Check him out, episode 99. He's a fireman. All you ladies, all you ladies out there want to listen to Justin's episode. (laughs) He's blushing. Justin, you're blushing. (laughs) anyway justin uh flew down to la and we are driving up as soon as i get this posted we're gonna hit the road and go up to big sur and uh where he's never been so i'm gonna show justin one of the most beautiful parts of america and we're gonna do some rough camping tonight he's gonna be in a hammock slung between a couple of trees somewhere and i'm gonna be sleeping in the back of the car Unless it gets too cold, in which case we'll be snuggling like a couple of puppies. And uh, and then we'll be up in San Francisco for a couple days, and then I fly out uh, to Spain uh, on Tuesday. So you may be listening to this long after all that's happened. Um, so in which case, ignore what I just said. I have also done, let's see, yesterday I recorded a podcast with... Um, Jake Johansson, the crazy-eyed, brilliant-minded comedian. I had him on once before. We're going to co-release that. I don't know exactly when he's he's editing or whatever. So uh, I'll try to make up for my tardiness this week by, you know, double releases in the coming weeks. So I appreciate all your feedback, all your attention and your love, uh, especially or even those of you who are sending me emails saying, what the fuck, dude, where's the episode? It's already Thursday. And people are complaining about not getting their tangentially speaking fix. Uh, I really I like that. Thank you. That means you care. Um, Anyway. Justin and I are sending lots of love out to you. Here he is. We're backstage. How, is this what you thought it looked like when I recorded these, Justin? I thought you had a big studio. <laughs> all the fancy people working for you. <laughs> My staff. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this, this is it. A little existence he has, folks. Yeah, this is it's simple. Keep it simple. All right. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Dan Engel is a really cool guy doing very important, interesting work. He's got a unique perspective on health and and the mind, and uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. So that's it. I'm not going to put any music in, uh, you know, other than the Carsey Blanton song at the end, just because we have to hit the road as soon as possible, and I don't have time to fuck around with this right now. So let's get right to the conversation. I should put a little music in, though. All right, I'm going to find something. I'll find something. But the problem is, I always find something after I do this, and then I can't tell them what it is. 
So that's that's the problem. Um, I'm going to find something and I'm going to put it in here and you're going to love it. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. But if you can guess what it is, I'll send you a goddamn T-shirt. How about that? (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you guys later.
Harlem, Harlem would Would be the place for me I've lived in so many neighborhoods Neighborhood Right here in the Snapball Snapball to you Island in the sun on the run I am here in beautiful Venice, California with Dr. Dan Engel. I'm pronouncing that right, mm -hmm. Engel, right? I, uh, I mentioned that uh, Casilda and I listened to you and Martin on Tim Ferriss's podcast on our drive down with no idea that we'd ever meet either one of you. And here within a couple of weeks, we've met both of you. It's pretty <laughs> it's incredible. Great. It's funny how things work out. Yeah, definitely. So just briefly, uh, you're a psychiatrist. You, mm -hmm. you did residency in psychiatry and neurology, is that? Uh, there's a dual training. Oh, okay. And when you get board certified, you take your board exams in both. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. So right. neurology is actually a subset of internal medicine. Right. And psychiatry, overlap so much with neurology they end up sharing a dual board right why the hell did you do that you know I went to college to play soccer really yeah and I uh, didn't really have any, <laughs> much aspirations after that uh, I was pretty much a baller all the way up <clears> to college <throat> and uh, the only thing I liked studying in high school was chemistry were you on attack um, I was on defense oh really so my uh, position kind of consistently throughout my uh, soccer years was the primary defender that would mark the attacking team's primary forward. Mm. So if they had a gunner, the guy that scored other goals, my job was to make sure that guy didn't touch the ball. Neutralize. And if he touched the ball, I would just nail him. Right. And so essentially eliminate him from the game, and then we would play 10 on 10 hmm. as opposed to 11 on 11. <laughs> so I hear they're an enforcer. Yeah. Really? Like tracker, stay on target. Huh. And, um, and I like that, that diligence. Right. And so I'm not super great with the ball, uh, and, I'm, and, and I do like that, like, pit bull mentality. Hmm. Um, so that was really right up my alley, and I was pretty good. And so I went to college on a... a combination full ride between academics and um, and soccer and then like halfway through soccer my advisor for chemistry finally asked me what I wanted to do with my degree and I said you know I don't really have a clue hmm. and he said well as I see it you've got two tracks um, typically well you got three tracks you could say in the lab which I don't see you doing you could go into pharmacy or you could go into medicine I said, well, pharmacy sounds more like being in a lab. It's, I could still be like a professional student, but I don't want to be in, indoors all the time. It doesn't sound very exciting. There's not a whole lot of growth. Um, but medicine sounds cool. Let me try, let me try that out and check that out. So this I, is like sophomore year? Or yeah, uh, between sophomore and junior year of college. Wow. And so I started doing ER rotations. Uh -huh. um, just a little scrub tech in the emergency department, right. picking up bedpans and kind of seeing what was going on. And really loved the emergency department hmm. um front lines kind of yeah. battle work 
Right. You don't know what's coming in. It's it can change from minute to minute, day to day. Stay and cool under pressure. Keep focused. Very much like playing defense on soccer. Right. And and so you you have that readiness. Yeah. Of whatever's going to come in, reacting to that, assessing the situation. Uh, and and I also liked the aspect of it where there was completion. Mm. Like in surgery, same thing. You have a task and you know very quickly whether you achieve that or not. Right. So you're in and out. And at that point, I was such a gunner. I was such a uh, like type A 4.0 you know, in my class and captain of the team. And like I would kick your ass if you mm. whined about being you know, second place or whatever. Like that whole Marlboro Man genre, because I grew up in South Texas with guns and chewing tobacco and horses. And You don't have much of a Texas accent. No. And, uh, and I think I, I seem to have lost that pretty quickly after I moved away from because uh, I did med school back in San Antonio and then I did my residency in Colorado mm. and then I started traveling kind of around the country after that and, right. and that w and it's a funny thing like when people would know that I'm from Texas like well you don't sound like you're from Texas um, and funny enough now I live back in Texas right. and, and I, it doesn't come out but it's funny to see how I'm so different and in many ways it's the same but Texas has changed too because like the world's changing it's a it's a different place really I thought every place but Texas had changed <laughs> well Austin <laughs> is this little gem right in the heart of it let's you yeah. know to be to be fair Austin is like is like Berlin in the 70s you know I I have to tell you I uh, I have never felt particularly at home in American culture but the pl the place I feel least at home is Texas mm -hmm. When I'm in Texas, I just feel like if, if they knew who I am, like everyone would beat me up all the time, you know, except in Austin, right. of course. But, yeah. you know, the just the, the whole the whole Texan America, you know, that. Yeah. 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 And it's a particular mindset that um, is strict and stern and disciplined. And these are a lot of characteristics of my dad that were really beneficial for me getting through school. He's mm. like the. Uh, he's a great provider, and he's got this real stern, internal, general archetype. Right. And then when I started getting uh, outside of the fold, so to speak, of medicine, uh, you know, when I broke my neck two weeks before medical school. And so that got me off of the Plain surgery. Uh, no, I dove off a pier about from the top of that building to the ground on my crown. What? Yeah. That's what, 30 feet? Uh, it was about 20. Wow. Yeah. And I hit a sandbar. Oh, man. And and I had, the funny thing is I'd been in that same spot the year before wade fishing on that same bar. And it was this complete blackout of that entire memory. And I've never dove, I've never dove into water with my hands behind my neck. Uh, I never dove in, in, even into a swimming pool like that. And anytime I'm in the Gulf of Mexico, because I grew up in the Gulf of Mexico. What do you mean the hands behind your neck? You I dove in like that. Like like in the sleeping position, right. or the lounging position. Dove in, so the so I didn't break my fall with my right, hands. Right. I, the only thing to hit was my crown. So it was like a sailor dive sort of. Yeah. What the hell were you thinking, man? Exactly. Stone cold sober. Um, I know how shallow the bay is because you can walk halfway across the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. Um, and it was just this weird kind of thing that happened. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I know, you know, in the big grand kind of meta view, it completely uh, cracked open my cosmic egg. 
uh, <laughs> so to speak. Totally, right? <laughs> and so after that, life was totally yeah. different. I wore a halo, and that's what these scars are from. Uh, I started med school with this halo screwed into my skull. And, um, and I realized that, like, <laughs> fuck, man, I've been really intense for a long time. Yeah. And um, I think I'm going to just take my foot off the accelerator, not have to gun for A's and have a good time making B's. So you, so this is such a sort of an, uh, a mirror image of the typical story, right? Like you show up at med school determined to start relaxing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> exactly. That's not how you're supposed to no, show up at I med school. No, I had more fun in med school and in residency than I ever had in high school and college because I was just... I was easier with myself, primarily with myself. But the story, I mean, the image you're giving of me of the driven 4.0 captain of the team, high school guy, doesn't fit with the guy who is already two years into undergrad and hasn't really thought about what he's doing career-wise. Yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do after that. Were you thinking, like, professional soccer? Um, Well, I don't think I was as good with the ball as you need to be to be at that level because everybody on the team has to be able to use the ball really well and my ball distribution skills aren't super good I'm a fucking pit bull Mm. when it comes to marking the best guy on the other team Uh, but I don't think my skills would have been at that level I also tore my ACL freshman year of college Mm. so I ended up going to a college that was a lot smaller it's not it's not typically a feeder college I was on the Olympic development team for a little while Mm. um, but after my knee happened then things just shifted and then my neck happened and then I was like wow okay cool it was just that kind of like perfect um, trajectory of events because I knew I wanted to play ball I knew I was going to be good at that I just happened to go to a place where I had played for that coach before so he was willing to take me on a torn ACL which a lot of coaches weren't at that point and they um, at the school that I went to they have a really good pre-med program so once that was suggested to me and I started doing ER rotations and then I got the Mm. med school bug and that was the next hurdle and that was the next challenge it was like great I can do that and then after I broke my neck and I was in the halo then they said well you can sit out the year if you want to or you can start with with your squad and I said well I'll start I'm in this halo, but that's just another challenge. We'll and you see. could walk. You were. I could walk, no deficits. So that's why I didn't, know, I didn't even know it was broken when I hit. I mean, it felt like I got blindsided by a freaking truck. Yeah. But I, got, I stood back up, climbed back up on the pier, walked back home, was moving my head all around. Like, I knew nothing at that point about like really head, you know, head and neck injury and neck stability. Yeah. Um, and then they immobilized me took a x-ray in that country dock because it was down in you know in, in a little town called Rockport he comes in he goes boy you're pretty goddamn lucky <laughs> you know you just broke that neck and you shouldn't be walking yeah but you are <laughs> shouldn't be alive yeah right yeah you could have drowned I know in six inches of water whatever I know. you dove so, into I mean, so it was like angels are definitely looking over me and, but, um, but they didn't stop you from diving off that pier. Though. No, but that was the like the retrajectory. And yeah. then I got into psychiatry, and then psychiatry was good. And like I was telling you before, I went down to to uh, Copenhagen right after I finished all my psychiatry training and mm. my child psychiatry fellowship. And then when when I was down there, I got introduced to rejuvenation medicine, cleansing, detoxification. Mm. Then I opened up a clinic in holistic and integrative psychiatry. 
I did that for a few years, and then I got introduced to ayahuasca, and then I became psychedelic medicine. Okay. And was the clinic in Texas? Uh, no, it was in Oregon. Uh, I did my last. Much uh, better place for that yeah, sort of thing. <laughs> totally. And I was in Portland, and Portland oh, and Austin right. have these like sister kind of community vibes. Yeah, they're both uh, keeping it weird. Yeah, yeah, keeping it weird. I saw a comic up there in Portland who was, he was joking about that, and he said that. Uh, you know, he said when you know he always thought that Portland had made up the keep it weird thing, and then he was in Austin, and he found out that that was actually Austin that had come up with it, and Portland stole it. And it's like, how weird is that? You know, <laughs> that you're stealing the other town's motto. <laughs> right. And then he said, if you really want to be weird, Portland's motto should be keep Austin weird. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. up to you. I mean, that's weird. Yeah. You know, just it's got a good vibe that way. Both those cities do. Yeah. Just really down to earth yeah. people, quirky. Yeah. Super authentic, just doing their own thing, and, and brilliant people. Austin is a lot sexier though. Mm. I'll mm -hmm. say that. I mean, I lived in Portland a year Super and a fit. half. Fit and just there's a sexiness about. Austin. Uh, maybe it's the warmth, the weather. I don't know what it is, but uh, yeah, Cassie and I went down to Austin several times for some conferences, the Paleo FX conference. Yeah. And we were in there, and uh, we made a lot of friends down there. Do you know? Uh, you ever float? I do. You float at the With Kevin's place. Kevin, yeah. Yeah. So Zero gravity. Kevin's been on the podcast twice, I think. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's yeah. a good friend. He's great. The first time super it was just we just talked about floating. It was like the day after I had floated the first time in my life was at his place. Awesome. Talk about starting at the top, right? Right. Super luxurious. Zero gravity <laughs> institute in Austin, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and so we just talked about floating and how he got into it and all that. And then we became friends and hung out. And he took us out hiking. There's a beautiful river outside of Austin somewhere he took us to. And, uh, and I started hearing all this other stuff about, you know, busking in New York for years. I don't know if you know this, but like he was busking in the, in the subway, paying his way through music school. And, and he's like a world-class caver. I didn't know he was a caver. Yeah, oh, he's huh. been in like, yeah, so the second episode is oh. like, dude, we got to talk again about caving, you know? <laughs> That's like, great. It's so interesting. Things you don't know about people. Yeah, exactly. And, and he's not like, he's not the guy who like, you know, lays it all out right, right. right away, you know? So, yeah, Kevin Johnson in the archives. Yeah. Check him out. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I mean, I want to get into to where you are now and all that, but I'm really interested in how, because you're in such an interesting place. I'm, I'm, I want to know more about how you ended up, because you were telling us you, you went to Thailand to sort of celebrate the end of school. And uh, you found this amazing library of, of holistic and mm -hmm. uh, was the psychedelic stuff there as well? Or was it just the mind body? Well, there were people doing psychedelic mushroom chocolate shakes on the dance floor on that. Like, because at this place called the sanctuary, you can do two tracks. You can do like the vacation track and you can do mm. a cleansing detoxification track. And right. on the vacation track, that's like scuba diving and snorkeling with phosphorescent algae oh, and I remember that. And, I know. I remember oh, that. Wicked, so beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. So amazing. It's like you're in Avatar. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's <laughs> And then if you're doing that on mushrooms, you're in the Avatar even more. <laughs> then you got the 3D glasses right. on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh and I chose to do this cleansing detoxification thing and I don't again, it was one of those things like I got to do that thing. I don't know why. I just know that I have to do that thing. And I had never fasted or cleansed or put water up my ass or drank ginger tea for 10 days straight. And um, I was 
I was fairly bored with it the first day because it was just me and this other guy hanging out while I'm kind of in the periphery seeing everybody else have a good time outside. Right. And so it's kind of like you're sick uh, and you have to stay home from school and your <laughs> friends are outside playing. So what am I going to do? And yeah. so I look over kind of casually to my right and there's a, just a slew of books in this fairly well-kept uh, bookshelf and library that they have. And come to find out, it was all on natural healing, rejuvenation, uh, detoxification, using food as medicine, um, the importance of the whole trajectory, mind, body, spirit continuum. And I had just finished 27 years of school, the last 12 of which were all in allopathic medicine and nothing had talked about those, nothing in my formal medical training had talked about any of those aspects. So I had 10 days on my hands and I just dove into that, that library like it was chocolate cake. Do you remember the first book that you read? I don't. I remember at the time one of the more impactful books was Gabriel Cousins' uh, Spiritual Nutrition. Mm. And it was, it was a, the way that he just hammered the data, and it's this volume on uh, essentially raw food living mm. with a really strong foundation in his perspective on spirituality. And come to find out, this planted a huge seed because it would be five years later that I'd be the medical director at the Tree of Life, which is a center that he opened and ran uh -huh. just south of Andrew Wiles place in Tucson at this little, in this little town called Patagonia, Arizona, like uh -huh. 20 miles from the border. No kidding. So it just sparked this really impactful seed. So when I opened up my clinic, uh, I got back from Thailand and I, I was scheduled to open up my clinic because it was summer between when I finished my child psychiatry fellowship. And when I came out of psychiatry, I, I knew in psychiatry I didn't really fit the mold of your standard psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't like, I was also diagnosed with narcolepsy in medical school mm -hmm. and took essentially like a cousin of Ritalin through my residency so for about four years and the shit works i mean it'll it gets you focused and straight and clean and now i'm not like nodding off driving and i'm not nodding off in the middle of client sessions and um and so there was the seat in the back like yeah but there's no answer so you're just gonna have me take this medication for the rest of my life like what else and that was always kind of itching in the back in the background. And then um, when I started to get more into integrative medicine and be curious about the causative factors, I just happened to be in Portland. That's where I did my child psychiatry fellowship, and that's where I was going to open up my clinic. And that's an integrative medical mecca. Yeah. Like if there ever was one in the states, that's it. Yeah, it's got a chiropractic college, an oriental medicine college, a naturopathic college. The medical school's there. I mean, it's like this real hub. So I started getting networked with chiropractors and naturopaths, essentially just cold calling people in the area and saying, I'm a new psychiatrist. My orientation is integrative psychiatry, a holistic approach. I'm willing to work with you on any clients that you've had trouble with in exchange for you letting me know everything that you did right. that was effective and not effective. Right. So I essentially started mentoring with those guys. And one of my best mentors was uh, a chiropractor in that area. And, mm. and he was super impactful and foundational for me appreciating the whole continuum of personal experience with life, mind, body, spirit, heart, and soul. 
you've got one of the most interesting uh, wrinkle patterns on your forehead that I've ever seen. Hmm. It sounds like palmistry, like that yeah. means something. Well, it's, and it's not something I generally notice, but a couple times you've made an expression where you get, there's like a yin-yang kind of huh. curl in the center of your forehead. It's really interesting. Wow. Wow. Yeah. If you, you like, I'll have to get that on Get that for your, your author photo, you know? <laughs> right. Totally. And then if the light's on it, so you got a light and dark <laughs> right. thing going on, damn. Awesome. Um, uh, yeah, you, you sort of went where I was going to try to try to get you because you come out of medical school most people come out of medical school they are full of certainty because they've been steeped in here's how you think here's how you distinguish true facts from bullshit here's how you uh, eliminate doubt in yourself because that's destructive and if you you know you pause and you think too much mm. you know you're not going to see as many patients as you need to and you're not going to be effective and especially in the american medical tradition mm. it seems to be a very um narrowing educational process and that's why i asked you the first book because it it seems like if the first book hadn't been good you said it, he hammers the data I thought, good, because that's what will hold the attention of mm -hmm. someone who's just finished that sort of an educational program. Mm -hmm. But you seem to have been very open-minded, as you said. Like you were, you had questions yourself as mm -hmm. you were already, as you were in school, you were already asking questions. Yeah, I didn't have any preconceived idea of what what it was going to look like. I'm the first in my family to go to college. Mm. Everybody was super stoked. I decided to go into medicine, um, and I had I, I came in kind of as a blank slate. And super curious. Right. And even now, super fucking curious. Like, what can we experience as our ultimate potential? And where can the field of medicine grow? The field of psychiatry regrow? And psychedelics has been a natural fit because I'm constantly on my leading edge of my growth curve. Right. And I like that. I like leaning into, well, I don't know if I like it. Um, it draws me to lean into that fear or that curiosity and right. that, that discomfort. And I find myself in, in those arenas just as a natural kind of fit. It's like um, there's nothing thirstier for me. There's nothing like that keeps my attention more than being on a new growth curve. Right. Had you been familiar with psychedelics in a recreational sense? No. No. No, being in, you know, growing up in South Texas, especially being a child of the the war on drugs era and having those pictures mm. burn in my brain of like this is your brain on drugs and it looks yeah. like you know egg frying in a pan i'm like whoa i don't want my brain on drugs i'll drink my brain into oblivion right right so i was a heavy binge drinker in high school and college and residency um and funny enough right before uh med school i was in right before i broke my neck i was in europe I'd just taken my first trip. It was a summer between uh, college and med school, and I was just going to, you know, see the world. And a buddy of mine, who was also going to be going to med school, a, a different med school, uh, we were best friends in college. We uh, went to Europe, and we saw 13 countries in 18 days. <laughs> <laughs> it just did it like typical Western style, like blitzkrieg. Thanks, rail. And just, yeah, exactly. And. Um, and it was curious, and, and when in Amsterdam, when in Rome, right. right? You're doing everything. So I smoked a J for the first time in Amsterdam, this mm. stuff called Purple Haze. Oh, yeah. And I lost three-dimensional perception for about 36 hours. Really? <laughs> <laughs> three-dimensional, so everything just looked flat? Totally flat. 
<laughs> I walked around, everything looked so flat, and it was weird and wicked wow. cool at the same time. Wow. I'm like, what just happened to my sense of reality? Yeah. So I came back and kind of had that curiosity and then broke my neck and I was like, well, obviously I don't want to do surgery. I'm still fucking curious about life. Psychiatry seems cool because hmm. people are so unique and their stories are so unique. And I just got curious about my story and people's story and more curious about what makes us who we are. And then the field of psychedelics opened up fairly later uh, after I was already running a clinic in Oregon. And um, it's actually another, I was, as at another pivotal time, I was going through a divorce at the time. Uh, it was clear that I was kind of done with Portland. Eight months of winter just wasn't cooking it for me. Um, and I was ready for something new. Mm -hmm. And so we came to the end of our relationship, uh, decided to close my practice, and decided to study with Gabriel Cousins down in Patagonia. Because I wanted to learn from somebody who could teach me directly as best they could about holistic psychiatry and detoxification medicine. Mm. And he was the guy in the country doing those things together. And so about the time I decided to make that transition, I was a part of a men's circle where we would do uh, sweat lodge ceremonies, uh, Lakota style, like every two to three weeks. And one of the guys in the circle, uh, after about three months or so, he and I just became super fast friends. And he asked me if I'd ever heard of ayahuasca. And I said, no, interesting, tell me more. And um, he recommended that. And I read um, Cosmic Serpent. Mm. And, Jeremy Narby. Right, yeah. right. Super, it's one of the things I like about his writing style and your writing style. I mean, it's so investigative and explorative and it really cultivates this narrative about where we come from traditionally whether it be in tribal cultures or with our primary relationship with plant medicines right. and it, the, the story was captivating and I trusted his recommendation implicitly um, and he just had an inner glow about him and I was going through a fair bit of transition yeah. and, it's, and it was a perfect time for me to experience a massive opening and uh, my first uh, weekend with ayahuasca was transformative. You did it in Oregon? I did. Yeah. There, and there was, and I, I t tell most people this, and I think most people can, who have been down that road can, can appreciate it too. For me, there was life before ayahuasca and there was life after ayahuasca. And that was the first hallucinogen you'd experienced. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I certainly feel like there was life before and after hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. My first experience was with um, psilocybin mushrooms Halloween night 1980 I'll never forget it and it was for me and, and I don't know if, if you had the same kind of feeling but for me it was like um, it, it, I mean kind of like a deja vu in the sense that I once the state of consciousness became clear it was like I know this I've been here Right. I used to be here all the time. Right. And and I forgot. Yeah, I forgot. How did I forget? Right. And this is real. Mm. You know, and, and I, I know for some people this probably sounds like, you know, the, the ravings of a lunatic. But and, and I'm not advocating psychedelics for everyone. And, I'm you know, whatever. I'm just talking about my personal experience. It was it was a, a sense of unveiling, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I found it incredibly uh, interesting and important. And I knew right away that it was sacred. So it, I never, I did a lot of hallucinogens, 
through my 20s and 30s, but I never saw it as drug use. I never saw it as a party thing, never like got high and went to bars and shit, you know. It, it was always in nature with good people mm. or alone, mm. you know, or in an interesting, you know, in the Taj Mahal after hours when all the guards had left and I'm wow. like, woo. Yeah, <laughs> I did that in several places. Wow. Um, but it was always a really sacred learning experience. Yeah. And I think if you approach it that way, you're not likely to have trouble. And even when the, you know, I've had terrible shit happen to me when I was tripping. I got stung by a scorpion in Guatemala and was told it was lethal. Whoa. So I had this big, big, I remember that night. Talk about a near-death experience. Yeah, well, I thought I was dying. I, the guy, the local guy had told me that they were lethal. And I did a whole podcast about it. I've told the story on various places, so I won't go, go into it. Scorpion venom, big medicine. Right? Is it? It's huge medicine. There are, uh, there are some clinics that set up their entire program around scorpion venom therapy. Really? Mm -hmm. For what? Um, I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine um, <laughs> who's definitely a psychonaut, extraordinarily brilliant, and researches the kind of traditional medical practices of a lot of different hmm. earth-based cultures and third world countries. Right. Because third world countries... Important work. Right. Really important And so work. you use what's available to you. Right. And um, I believe, uh, I'm not going to give the entire uh, historical reference justice because this was a kind of an offhanded conversation. But w he was talking, <laughs> he was talking about using scorpion therapy for himself in very creative ways, including uh, <laughs> erectile uh. support. Not yeah. that he needed the support, but... Yeah, it's a numbing effect. Right, and he was uh, investigating that, so and he's definitely one of those guys that'll put himself in the lab, <laughs> right? So he was telling me the, the kind of the benefits and some of the ramifications. Oh, man. And then he got in to tell me that, yeah, that it uh, in certain parts, I believe it's in certain parts of southern Mexico, hmm. and that might be bordering into Guatemala yeah. and um, some of the local areas or maybe even Panama. Right. Where there are entire clinics based around scorpion therapy, which is interesting and not totally surprising. Right. Um, because, again, we use what's available to us. There are whole clinics and, and medical centers based on ayahuasca sure. medicine sure. and ceremonial rites and the healing aspects of it. Along those lines, there's a very interesting theory I read. I don't remember where I read this, but... <clears throat> It was an explanation. It was ethnomusicology and ethnobotany sort of joined. And the, the argument was that the reason African music is so rhythmically complex and Native American music is rhythmically very simple is there was a great availability of mind-altering plants in the Americas, and there isn't in Africa. Huh. And so the Africans developed these complex rhythmic patterns as a way to induce trance. Right. And in the Americas, it was necessary because they had the peyote or the ayahuasca or the mushrooms or whatever. And Fascinating. Yeah, I, I don't know how well that stands up. You know, mm -hmm. it, I, I don't have that sort of expertise to to really uh, vet it. But it's an interesting theory. And, you know, as right. you say, we use what's available. And if nothing's available, we create something. We, right, because yeah. we are curious creatures by nature. Yeah. And there is a part of the internal hardwire that is directed towards a transcendent experience. And so 
if it's not going to be and I, I think there are some of us that are that are constitutionally and characterologically programmed and kind of made up to be on the edge and yeah. to be the really curious ones and to be um, on the periphery of the tribe trying out new things and like Terrence yeah. McKenna said the, the definition of a shaman is that person that's willing to go to the edge of the known to jump across the edge have an experience in the unknown and then come back and tell everybody else what happened right because right? there's there's a fair bit of risk and at, at the end of the day when the medicines are being held well the only risk is losing one's structured sense of reality and again like you said you know psychedelics aren't for everybody so for somebody with a predilection towards psychosis who's, who already is across the veils right why push that envelope even further right but when when we're so locked in and that was what happened when i lost three-dimensional perception for 36 hours in amsterdam i was like holy shit what just happened this is kind of curious to me. There's always been that, like, whoa, this is kind of curious. As opposed, it definitely been scary for times, for sure. I lived in the jungle for a year because um, I just wanted to study with the medicines. Mm. So after I left the Tree of Life, working with Gabriel down in Patagonia, Arizona, I, I closed up shop and and I went to Princess with Ayahuasca and I lived uh, with the local people for about a year. No running water, no electricity, like super wow. off-grid. Brazil or Peru? This or? was uh, outside of Iquitos, Peru. Oh, nice. And um, just curious, curious about the medicines, curious about the work, curious about their aspect and the relationship that they have as a primary relationship with the plant medicines and how they cultivate that relationship to be able to instill healing of the body, but through the mind and mm. into the spirit. Yeah and to go deeper and deeper into the subtle layers yeah. to be able to unravel what at times are transgenerational patterns. Right. Maybe we're not even healing our stuff. We're, we're healing generations of our family and stuff. Isn't it and interesting how epigenetics now is starting to uncover transgenerational trauma? And, you know, it's like, I feel like we're living in a time where Western science is starting to catch up with some of this stuff that, that <laughs> right. we've been hearing from right. traditional people forever. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, man, what, you were talking about something a second ago. The, the, oh, the, uh, you reminded me of, do you know who Stanley Krippner is? The Krippner Institute, I've heard of it. Uh, no, 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 different guy. He's, uh. he's a, he was my professor in graduate school and has oh. become a good friend. He's written a bunch of books about um, shamanic healing and uh, uh, telepathy and like, he's he's a fascinating guy. He, so you were, you were into this way back. Oh yeah, yeah. Then. Before I went to grad school, I was wow. uh, studying ethnobotany and on my own and working with maps. Like I I met Rick Dublin twenty five years ago or something. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Stanley said something really interesting to me recently. He's eighty four or eighty three now. He's like he, he tripped with Timothy Leary and, you know, he's been the sort of in-house psychologist to the Grateful Dead since the 60s. Stanley's a fascinating Rad. guy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Anyway, but Stanley and I were talking and uh, this, what you're talking about with the, the Native people's relationship with spirit and, and plant medicines and consciousness. He made the point that until very recently, the primary mode of healing someone 
pass through their consciousness, as you were just explaining. And therefore, there would have been strong evolutionary advantages to being the sort of person who can be approached through the consciousness and through the spirit. So something we might call hypnotic ability, where some people seem to be very open to being hypnotized and other people aren't. Some people enter into trance states quite easily, other people never. Some people uh, have trouble with orgasm, another consciousness state, right? Um, and so his point was, until very recently, that would have been a great advantage evolutionarily because you would have been much more likely to survive if you were amenable to that type of healing. Mm -hmm. And only recently has it become sort of not that important in, in terms of modern medicine, mm -hmm. right? Which then makes me think how different the architecture of consciousness would have been just a few centuries ago. Dramatically. Yeah. So we're assuming they were like us, that they thought like us, that they believed like us. But actually, if he's right, there was this huge sort of multi-generational impulse toward transcendent beings, mm -hmm. toward people who entered into those sorts of ways of thinking much more easily than we can. Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, for better or worse, right? Because you also had witch burnings and all sorts of, you know, insanity ensuing. Uh. <laughs> right. And, and that's not coming from uh, really earth-based culture. Right. You know, that kind right. of insane relationship. Yeah. And, and, and that's out of fear. And when we have a primary relationship with nature and we understand with how to cultivate reverence, reverence for where we come from, reverence yeah. for one another, right. the interconnectivity and the magic that happens in that interconnectivity, and the investment where one of the things you bring up in Sex at Dawn is we, for a large part, do come from a tribal-based mindset. Sure. Right. And, and, and where gratitude is the sort of basis of everyday life. Right. It's the currency of life. Right. Well, there's sharing with other people and there's a sense of gratitude to the world for providing mm -hmm. as opposed to the, you know, post-agricultural where you got to work. Right. You got to work. Nothing and, comes for free, And kid. we try and dominate. Yeah. We try and dominate one another. We try right. and dominate our environment. We try and control. Yeah. And we're in control of very little. Yeah. And we try and, you know, it is like you were talking about before when I, you know, some people coming out of medical training, you know, have a very stern kind of like exactitude and know what they're going to do. And, yeah. And it's, there's so, we can't even control our own minds, even with the advent of, you know, psychopharmacology. Suicide yeah. rates are the same as they were now, are the same now as they were in the 50s. Hmm. The epidemic of um, psychiatric illness is continuing. Right, depression rates are much higher. Right, depression, know. autism, Alzheimer's. Yeah. So you have that both psychological and neurological continuum that's continuing to spiral out of control. The only thing that's improving is the profit margins of pharmacological companies. Yeah, it continues, yeah. right? And, and we as physicians, we kind of just go with that model because we're not taught another model in our training. Yeah. In training, I had, in my medical training, I had eight hours of a discussion on nutrition. <laughs> you know, and my training was in psychiatry. We yeah. never talked about hallucinogens and altered states of consciousness, except a little bit about William James's 
discussion in the varieties of religious experiences where yeah. he did talk about the mystical experience, which is very um, ineffable and a sense of unity and oneness and a noetic sense of a truer identity and a truer connection with life and that that pe that peering across the veils and or the unveiling and to see like a, another aspect of true remembering yeah. of who we are, how we're connected, how things are interwoven. And the, the more simple, close to the ground, bare skin on the bare ground, earth-based cultures, remember that. They live that uh, yeah. on, a, on a more consistent basis until they've been westernized. And they've had the outside impulse that it, with extrinsic goals being like it's it's really cool and valuable to have a car it might be functional great but like what was it that movie um the gods the, must be crazy right they yeah. get this coke bottle and they're yeah. like that never had value before yeah. but now you've got this r random rare thing that everybody yeah. wants yeah so it, it's i think the opportunity is growing for us to come back into a remembering because we're on the it feels at least that we're on the a precipice yeah we're in this, this crisis point, and I was just appreciating one of the definitions of crisis. It's fairly neutral in its description, and it's essentially, crisis is this, the position in a sequence of events at which the future events, whether they be good or bad, is determined. Hmm. So it's the position in a sequence of events at which future events going in either direction, good or bad, will be determined. It's the turning point. And it's like, wow, that's an interesting, pretty cool description because it's fairly neutral and it's fairly clear about there's been a series of things happening. We're at this point, and at this point, we can go in either that direction or that direction. But in what sense then is every point not a crisis? Because every point is a moment of decision, right? Yeah, and there's this sense of a, uh, a requirement mm. in motivating significant change mm. because the series of events that we've been in the midst of is no longer sustainable. Yeah, there's a sense of continuity in sometimes. There's a line we quote in Sex at Dawn from Arthur Miller, uh, the playwright, who said, an era can be considered over when its basic illusions have been exhausted. Mm. I think mm -hmm. uh, if Truth I understand revealing. what you're saying, that's where we are now, and I, I certainly agree. The, the sort of respect for institutions that your parents and my parents had, nobody has that anymore. Nobody thinks the government's <laughs> looking out for us. Right. Nobody thinks Wall Street is you know, helping make the world a better place. Nobody no. thinks the arm, the, you know, like the soldiers might be good people by and large, but they're being used to do ridiculous things that they don't understand and they're not even allowed to question by definition. Like who, what, sports, sports riddled with, you know, illegal substances and cheating scandals and like where is a single institution that hasn't been revealed as corrupt? Organized religion, fucking children, you know, like how much worse can it get? Every column of this edifice is just completely eaten away yeah. by termites and the whole thing's about yeah. to come down. You're right. And it's very interesting that this is, I mean, I've been in this world. I told you I met Rick Doblin 25 or 30 years ago or whatever. 
it was unimaginable to me that someone like you uh, would come out of medical school and just being like, oh, what's this? That's interesting. Oh, okay, I understand this. Let's let's you know pursue this more. Let's go live in the jungle for a while. Let's talk about how this applies to child psychiatry. I mean, I knew Andrew Weil, and I Andrew Weil was a fucking renegade. <laughs> he was total renegade. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, he risked his total career to to stand, stick to his guns, and never renounce his experience with altered states and hallucinogens. I respect him immensely for that. You know, totally. But he really. You know, and I, I, I'm friends with uh, a lot of people in the sort of gay rights movement, you know, Andrew Sullivan, Dan Savage, people like that. And it's the same thing. It's it's just people 20 years ago saying, fuck it, this is true. Mm. I don't care. Mm-hmm. And slowly the culture sort of acknowledged it. Mm-hmm. And, it and now I, I often say Dan Savage you know, 20 years ago was on the fringe and now he's mainstream, but he's saying exactly the same things. It's that the stream has shifted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Slowly, it is. And and it's an exciting time and and, I, and it feels like it's accelerating now and I don't know if that's yeah. just my uh, experience, but I keep mm-hmm. having these conversations like, wow, it really feels like a lot of stuff's happening in a short period of time. Do you think it's the internet? Do you think it's that it you could know, be, right, because we're so used to things happening immediately now, and, and well, we're, we've never been so... Seven billion people have never been so connected right. immediately on the planet right. as a as a geist. Well, and think about 20 years ago. How would someone like you have connected to people who are ready to hear what you're saying? It would have been really hard. It would have been slow. And most of the means of connection are contro- were controlled by... Like if you're talking about writing journal articles to try to get your colleagues to see the value of these medicines, it would have been really hard to get an article published mm-hmm. in any sort of high-impact journal. Mm-hmm. Now you can just go right around them. Right. Yeah. Right. Very so interesting. It, it's, it is definitely an information age, and, and we have now so much information available to us. So I think you're right in that there is a connection to the availability of so much that we haven't had collectively before yeah. so immediately and i and it, and it seems to be experientially the case too like mm. my even when i'm unplugged cuz i'll take long breaks of being unplugged it still feels like so much is happening in a day's time or a week's time or a month's time mm. and oftentimes those are interpersonal experiences that i'm having and so i'm wondering too if it's I just saw um, Racing Extinction, Mm. rad movie. I think I may have seen it. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was just aired Uh on Discovery. Oh, then I haven't, yeah. And it's a really good treatise on the state of the world affairs as a planet. Is it's not the the ice the No, there's a chasing ice. Chasing ice. That was really well done. That was good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in that. Kudos for really for yeah. the the time and diligence to be somewhere really fucking cold and, <laughs> for a and long stay of time. there. And they saw that incredible calving event. I know, yeah. right? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, and and you know, in the, in the picture, it looks small, but that like yeah, that was um, that was like the size that, of the Manhattan. State yeah, building. yeah, it was like all of Manhattan <laughs> collapsing. Whoa. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I yeah, distracted you there. I, I highly recommend everybody watching. Racing extinction. Racing extinction because it's such a good reflector. It's easy for us 
to forget that we're part of a living organism, which is the world. Yeah. And the oceans are 30% more acidic than they were just 40 years ago. And that 100 plus species go extinct every day. And that we've lost 50% of our biodiversity in the last 100 years. Yeah. This is some of the data from them and, and another uh, planetary culture. Um, or Senator, Sen Center for Planetary Culture. And it just gets me wondering about like, okay, obviously this isn't a sustainable course. We're not, we don't have a sustainable relationship with the planet. So that's something that needs to change. All of the institutions that you just mentioned are revealing their skeletons and people's internal bullshit meters really going out. And so we're looking for truth within ourselves and within the world at large. So there's this like beautiful brewing mm. of uh, an activation that's happening individually and collectively. That's my choice to believe and we'll stop just numbing out to the TV and trying to consume and that we'll start to wake up to the fact that if we don't shift things through a conscious choice individually and collectively, and we always have to start within ourselves first, then we'll pass that point. And I'm not a doom and gloom kind of person, but I think that in the midst of passing that point, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Yeah. And that might include illness and die off or whatever. Well, we're seeing it now with this, this an epidemic I'd never heard of two days ago is now sweeping America. The Zika, whatever I, it's I, called. I, I just saw that for the first time myself today yeah. when I was walking in the VA, VA hospital. I, I don't, well, I was in Cuba and Mexico for the last month. Oh. Cuba's rad, by the way. Really? Cuba's fucking amazing. Wow. Because it's so not Western impregnated. There's yeah. no commercialization yeah. except for the revolution <laughs> right. and the power of the people right. lying in right. the hands of the worker. Right. And viva la revolution and like that that sense of like a culture had to just figure out life because when the soviets left in 91 their economy went to shit right and they they got a little bit of help from venezuela when they had some oil from them which was badly needed and essentially most of the culture and communities and people live in significant poverty but they're healthy they're happy yeah. when they're economy went down their their body mass index went down with it like so they went from somewhat obese to like fairly thin and started growing food and started figuring out how to live together and playing music in the streets and yeah. just like doing it my wife um who you met a few minutes ago grew up in mozambique and she studied medicine in Europe and then back, she finished in Mozambique and then worked for seven years in the African bush there. Wow. And um, going from village to village with a pickup truck. Wow. And a nurse and some supplies in the back. So she did everything, delivering babies, surgery, amputations, you know, you name it, she did it because she was the only game in town wow. right and nobody's there's no malpractice you just you try what you can right battlefield so, medicine yeah so she's done a lot of really i'm constantly trying to convince her to write memoirs oh my gosh yeah anyway the the connection to what you're saying is that uh the other doctors who were in mozambique were all from cuba because it was a mm. communist country at the time mm. and cuba was supporting the revolution there and she was so impressed by Cuban doctors mm. because they didn't have the technology, so they really knew their shit. They diagnosed, and she learned 
diagnosis through you know looking at the body smelling the breath tasting the urine for for diabetes mm-hmm. um, you know looking at the color of the lips the gums the fingernails like all this kind of stuff that you know, t- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most of it is is bypassed now in modern medical tra- training. Excuse me, because you've got the technology. You mm-hmm. just send them off for blood test, and you know, we'll look at the numbers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's it's yeah. We tend to get more focused on the data and the labs, and it's right. a kind of a, it's, it, it's consistently a rule of thumb that just can't be hammered enough. You're not treating the labs, you're treating a client. Right. You're treating the patient. So let's get into that a little bit. I mean, there's so many things I'd love to talk with you about, but uh, I don't want to keep you here all night. Um, you do child psychiatry. Yep. Uh, not formally as much now, but I did have a pra- I did a child psychiatry fellowship and I had a practice in child psychiatry that was more integrative based and helping right. kids come off of medications and, and trying to understand, like for myself, how I got off of Ritalin, or is actually Silert, which is a co- cousin of Ritalin for narcolepsy, is I just got really curious, like, well, I've been taking this and it works, but I'm not gonna be a slave to medication and I'm curious to know what's driving it. Hmm. So I started getting into integrative medicine and when I did my first cleanse and, then I went gluten-free, stopped alcohol, um, almost totally stopped pot, still smoked a little bit at that time, don't smoke any now. Um, it started getting better sleep and um, started targeting my nutrition more effectively. Mm. Started really looking at how foods made me feel and started being a detective. Mm. And, and ha- had you always been sensitive to that? Or no, I, I, was, I just kind of went through the motions, you know, right. like I'll just run into 7-Eleven, grab a burrito, I only got five minutes between clients. It was that kind of like gay. Right. Right. But then I just got more and more curious um, once I got out of my medical training to put myself under the microscope. And I was finding myself getting curious for clients, the same things that I eventually put myself into, which was revamping my diet completely and doing all those things I just mentioned. And funny enough, when you do that for kids too, their ADHD rates go down, Mm. their anxiety rates go down, their sleep patterns start to normalize. They're extremely responsive. Right. They're little sponges and and things just work better. But the the hard thing to do in, well, not hard, one of the challenges in working with kids when you're inviting that kind of change to happen is it really has to start with the parents. See, that's where I was going. I was thinking, because when I think of child psychiatry, I think of the pain of seeing a kid that you can help who's living in a family that's making them sick. Mm-hmm. And you can't change the family. No. And it's, it can be super frustrating. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons I didn't yeah. continue to practice. And around that time is when I went down to um, Patagonia and I went to essentially raw food vegan detox center that's set up kind of like an ashram. It's Patagonia, New Mexico. Yeah. No, okay, not, yeah. not South America. Right. Arizona, right. Um, and so, yeah, there was a frustration there. And there was also the the magic because you know when you do intervene at that level you've really significantly intervened in another human's life that is likely to change the trajectory of their life in a beneficial way because you're at a crisis point right yeah you're coming in at that crisis moment in their lives and you can right And and the parents are like fix my kid right and if and if i can if i can draw the parents into a discussion like okay Tell me everything that's happening and tell me what's going on for you. How's what they're 
experiencing affecting you? Mm. How's that creating suffering for, for you? Why are you, why, what's the hurry to fix them now? And then you draw them into the narrative of their own story if they're willing. And if they're not willing, then I don't work with them. Right. If they're willing, then we start to look at the whole family dynamic. Right. And then once I've got their trust and they recognize that I'm there, I'll be on the front lines with them, they can trust me, and I'm only a navigator. I'm not driving it, I'm not responsible, they're responsible for it. I can be in the passenger seat with a map and I can point them in the direction to go and they're really gonna be called it, to work at the level that I'm desiring to work with my clients in um, to do super deep, honest inventories to see how much their pattern of living and their relatedness with each other as a couple and the family dynamics or their relationship with work or their relationship with their own trauma or whatever it is, how is that affecting their child right. who's now expressing that dissonance through their own behaviors because that's what kids do. Exactly. They're little radars for what's going exactly. on in the environment and they're going to play it out through their behaviors. Yeah, yeah. There's an alarm going off, yeah. you know, yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, you know, when I think about child psychiatry, those are all the things I think of and how that must just be so excruciating and difficult. And It's super difficult in the standard of care that we have um, oftentimes because the child psychiatrist's role is niched now into mm -hmm. prescribing medications. Right. You're drugging kids. Right, with adult medications. Right, that, that haven't we, been tested on kids. No, and we don't know the neurodevelopmental ramifications. Exactly, it's, it's unethical, it's, it's unbelievable. And, and ignoring, by drugging them, we're you know, treating the symptom and we're ignoring the underlying structure that's causing the problem in the first place and allowing it to fester, mm -hmm. you know, it's unbelievable. Casilda has an idea for something she wants to do at some point, um, which is not just kids, but when someone comes, a patient comes, you know, with whatever, sleeplessness or sexual dysfunction or whatever it is, instead of seeing them in the office, go to their house mm. with them, mm -hmm. meet the people they live with, mm -hmm. look at the house, look yep. at the bed, yep. look at the room, look at the, you know, the animals that are there. Because we see people in an office and then we send them home and we don't know where they're living. Right. You know, maybe it's right. a fucking mess. <laughs> Oftentimes it is. <laughs> exactly. Right. I had exactly. some rotations uh -huh. uh, when I was working with the social workers uh, that worked in the clinic in the hospital where I did my fellowship. And, and we did that. Yeah. Uh, and I would kind of ride along, so to speak, kind of like you're riding along with the cops or you're right. riding along with the surgeons. I'd ride along with the, the social workers for this, like, I think it was about a three month stretch. And uh, I was glad that the social workers were going into the house and they were looking at the larger picture. And, and it was still difficult at times to translate all of that into the most uh, completely healthy environment that you could envision. Mm -hmm. and, and, then it was, and then it was a reflection for me. It was like, well, how about we just start where they're at, not where I'm desiring them to be? Yeah. Kind of like you would in relationship. Like, right. I'm not looking at my partner um, as uh, the potential of what she can be all the time because then I'm not appreciating where she is now and I'm not super present with what her experience is right now and I'm not trying to make her into something that I'm hoping she'll become. Yes, we, we choose to see people becoming better and greater over time and uh, you know becoming we're all doing that yeah and in the in the community mental health setting 
it's the goal to have that kind of boots on the ground availability and sometimes it's possible and sometimes it's really challenging because of um, just lack of um, services, lack of practitioners, lack of the boots on the ground. Time. Time. Yeah. And then, and then weaving the whole cohesive team together. Yeah. Like bringing the, the psychiatrist into the discussion with the social worker who has just been at home yeah. and seeing all the nuances. And then holding the family in the center of this nexus of support. What are your primary needs? If I'm, if I'm talking to parents about buying organic food and they're trying to put money together for, you know, bus fare, yeah. we are definitely at a mismatch. Well, and that brings it to another level where we're talking about trying to be healthy in, a, in an unhealthy family. Even if the family's healthy, it's embedded in an unhealthy culture, mm-hmm. you know, especially working in America. It's... Uh, you're swimming upstream here. It's like yeah. how do you? You're. So, you, it's like trying to be a healthy fish in a polluted river. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's super challenging, and I think in the midst of the crises that we're talking about and the potential for the institutions to shift. Yeah. Um, the level of inequality is the greatest in the states than than anywhere else in the yeah. world. Yeah, and historically since the 20s, just before the Great Depression. Right. Hello. I know, right? right. So <laughs> how many times do we have to learn this lesson? It's funny how, yeah. you know, you could fill up in this alcove in your house 85 people, and, and 85 people control over half the, half of the world's wealth. And they're miserable fucks. <laughs> right. That's what kills me. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that, and they're gonna, and, and because of that misery, they're gonna hold on to that wealth tighter and tighter and tighter. Well, that's. I. I mean, I think we need to get these plant medicines into the bloodstreams of those people. Right. You know, because the thing is, and, uh, this is something people listen to the podcast have heard me ranting about this before because I, I uh, often talk about what I'm writing as I'm writing it. You know. So this book that's off being edited now uh, there's a section where I sort of tongue-in-cheek propose a new um, diagnostic criteria for the uh, DSM-5 or 6 or whatever the next one will be uh, RAS which is rich asshole syndrome <laughs> and it's, it's about like how in my my argument is that yes there are people who get rich because they're assholes right because they're willing to do they're psychopaths and so they're willing to do the crazy shit that is necessary to get rich but the other thing is that people become assholes because they're rich Hmm. because that inequality requires the development of psychological mechanisms that numb you to the pain of the people around you Hmm people you could theoretically help but choose not to mm-hmm. um, because structurally it's very difficult and I talk about my own experience in India the first time I went to India and you know mm-hmm. I'm sitting in a restaurant wow. eating my curry and there are starving kids standing five feet away from me staring at the plate and I'm just like well what do I do you know and sometimes I like took food out and gave it to the kids but then I had like 50 people immediately you know and I can't feed everybody and and I'm just traveling and I want to be in India I want to hang out and so what happened I started ignoring the kids I learned to ignore the fucking kids you know I learned to step over dead bodies in the street I lived in Manhattan I learned to step over 
you know, somebody lying on the sidewalk, possibly dead and on my way to the, you know, whatever I was doing. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not accusing these billionaires of being more of an asshole than I am. I'm saying that we all respond to those situations in similar ways. And that is the ultimate irony of this, because the so-called winners of the game aren't winning. They're losing, too. Mm-hmm. So what kind of game is it where the winners are as unhappy as the losers, you know? Yeah, so. it's it's a really good question, and it's a yeah. great... It's a great question to continue to pulse, and, and that's why I love the podcast kind of arena, mm. because you get, you get information out there so quickly, yeah. and people that wouldn't have heard your message or wouldn't have maybe thought about these kinds of things now have a perspective and they start doing that internal investigation and that internal inquiry and yeah. start to question their own values and their own mo- motives and their own norms and the relationship with themselves and their and their environment because we are a society that's significantly disconnected disconnected from one another yeah. It's funny in an, informa- in an information age where we have so much connectivity through yeah. social media that we're more disconnected from each other on a human scale than we've ever been. Yeah. And how long is that going to go until it comes back full circle and we start to yeah. appreciate this like face-to-face and heart-to-heart and time and, and the slowing and that. So there's this movement now and like, in in the foodie circle like slow Slows, cooking and yeah. slow meals and yeah, slow sex slow sex right and I'm, I'm just i've got a really just such a juicy connection with my girlfriend and we have sex for hours and it's amazing and i've never had that kind of connection mm. and um and that's been on a growing edge for me too because it's in the context of being in an open relationship mm. and that's also a growing edge for me because it brings together um, like all of the things that maybe I would have glossed over if we were just straight monogamous and Mm -hmm. like I I get to wrestle with jealousy and issues of intimacy and like oh what's that like for her and for me and it leads in these discussions that go on for hours and this like radical opportunity and invitation for each of us to show up at a deeper level of presence Right. Towards a greater sense of self-awareness and mutual connectivity that wouldn't happen otherwise. All these, what ties everything we're talking about together is a hunger for authenticity. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the bankruptcy of those institutions that they've all been exposed as inauthentic. Mm-hmm. You know, the priest who's up there, you know, genuflecting and swinging his incense around is not what he's pretending to be. The politicians aren't what they're pretending. Nobody's what they're pretending to be. And I think you're right that people are taking matters into their own hands now and saying, well, fuck it, I'm going to have chickens in my backyard so I know those eggs, you know, don't come from diseased birds being Mm -hmm. propped up by massive doses of antibiotics. And yeah, I want a relationship where we talk about being attracted to other people. Whether we act on it or not, at least let's be real, mm-hmm. you know? Let's mm-hmm. stop with this fucking charade of family that, you know, we're all like got these smiles painted on our faces. And yeah, there's <laughs> right. there's an acknowledgement that it isn't working. Um, 
I'm so fucking cold, man. <laughs> the sun has gone down <laughs> in the time that we've been talking. You're, you're over there comfortable in your airplane. I know, like I'm liking it. Yeah, yeah I got good. the blanky thing working. It's good. <laughs> Um, man, there's so much I'd love to talk with you about, but I feel like we've we've gone over an hour, and maybe Good. we can reconnect. Uh, yeah, down we'll the road consider somewhere. this part one. Good, I would love to. Okay. Uh, where can people read about you or connect with you? What's what's your a blog site that I have is called Mastery in Medicine, mm -hmm. and that's um, a wide swath of topics from right. plant medicines to neurodegenerative repair to concussion repair. I just right. wrote a book called um, the Concussion Repair Manual because another part of my interest is in brain rehabilitation. No kidding. Yeah. Um, the guy who I, we're renting this place from played in the NFL for eight years. Oh, rad. Cool. Yeah, I had him on the podcast just recently. <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, and concussion, like, that's the, yeah. that's the hot topic in sports right now. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and, it, and it should be because uh, we can intervene. You know, talking about like intervening with kids, you can intervene with athletes at an early stage uh, with neuroprotective measures that help preserve mm. brain health. Right. And when there is dysfunction, I've had six pretty severe head traumas myself, and the last of which I got turned upside down in a snowboard park, put a six inch crack in the back of my helmet, and, I, and this um, internal voice said, you just crossed the line. Mm. Even after, diving off the pier and laying on my crown and cracking my neck, I didn't have a lot of brain trauma. But that last one did it. And I knew once I crossed the line, I was like, oh shit, I gotta get this straight. And sure enough, for the next few months, I had problems with concentration, focus, memory, insomnia, mood, dysregulation, like the whole gamut. So I went deep down that rabbit hole of neuroregenerative investigation. And I'm glad that it's coming out in, in the in you know maybe not in the w way it is but everything's going to get revealed. We were just talking about institutions that are yeah. starting to be revealed and and um, and the players deserve that. They yeah. they deserve that level of um, respect. Yeah, and players at every level, not just at the every pros, level. the totally. kids who are getting and hurt starting by this. starting with yeah. the kids. Yeah, uh, and it doesn't. And we can get that's a whole other discussion. Um, you know, and the protective mechanisms because com combat sports are going to be hard sports. Yeah. It's not a matter of if you bonk your head and and bruise it, but when and when you do, what can you do to recover more quickly? And what are the mm. safe practices to make sure that you stay out long enough so the brain's healed before you go back in? That's so, where that's where that right. really crucial window is. So, are you consulting with uh, sports teams or? Um, I consult with a company called Onnit. Oh yeah, right. And um, we have. I was just watching the playoffs with Aubrey the other day. Oh, nice. No shit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit, man. This is so funny. <laughs> Small circles, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Um, he, was, yeah. he was up in Malibu. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, he, he's a super good friend. And, and we really developed a brotherhood off a lot of conversations around plant medicines. Mm -hmm. Spent a lot of times in the jungle together, like three, four times uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, love that guy. Yeah. And so he's invited me to come on board with Onnit a few years ago doing product development and doing some consultation with uh, the players. And so the endorsement team is a bunch of pro guys, right. fighters, etc. Right. And um, so I'm doing consultations more directly one-on-one -on -one with um, the athletes through Onnit. I haven't really started doing more of the larger networking with teams. It seems like that's a natural progression and I'm open to it. 
Um, it's funny enough, I live about a mile from where I went to college. And um, I'm interested to go back and talk to the team there and, uh-huh. and have more of a conversation with the coaches and see you know, what things those are guys, they're doing for the guys and right. the protective mechanism. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot of great ways for us to stay connected. So Mastery Medicine is one way to get in touch with me. Um, on it's another avenue. Um, I'm also on board with Crossroads, which is the Ibogaine Center that you know Martine through. Right. Um, and um, you sound I'm, like a busy dude. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of good stuff happening. And yet you you manage to disconnect. Like it's so. I, I got to learn how you do that. It's so freaking important. Yeah. Um, you know, and and it's not easy. It's an active process. I was just talking yeah. with a friend of mine about this yesterday. Um, not to say that I'm a great meditator because my mind can get super squirrely, um, but there is time that I take in nature or time that I take uh, just turning everything off for four hours and just sitting mm. and drawing or automatic writing or going for a long bike ride or just doing something. Masturbating. Masturbating. Do, totally, right? Just slow masturbation. Right, like, oh, wow, this is a great sensory experience. <laughs> yeah. Whatever it might be, like, yeah. just to have presence. Yeah. Just to be yeah. super present because we can get so caught up in doing 10 things at once. And then my, my critter brain gets super freaking haywired. Yeah. So, for example, like when, you know, Sonia and I are, are, you know, connecting in deep conversation or we're on the dance floor or we're having dinner with, a, you know, her tribe or we're in the midst of awesome sex. It's like super presence. Be there. Yeah. And yeah. You miss it. it and it's easy to just to, to blink and it's gone. There's a Chinese saying I read somewhere that uh, the man who chases two rabbits catches neither. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thanks for doing this, Dan. Yeah, I'm I so really glad we got a this. chance to. I look forward to the next time. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com or fundwhatyoulove.com on either of which you can decide how much you want to give the podcast a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more, or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Other people are covering your load, so you're going to be good. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those t-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at Carsey Blanton. 
Carsebell.com, C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L-A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you want to be free, say what you want to feel, spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms, we'll dance into the ground. 